Also, just a couple of announcements. We are just this week yesterday. What is today? Tuesday. Just yesterday. We started posting our Milk to Meat study online on our blog. We're going to have daily readings like four or five days out of the week. So this year you can read through our Milk to Meat discipleship spiritual formation study. Yeah, you can, look, you, can, you can read it on your phone, tablet, whatever. You know, it's just on our website. Uh, but we're going to be posting daily readings and you can go through it and you'll be through about November. Uh, if you, you know, read for the four or five days out of the week, we take the weekends off, you know, like we do in the milk to meat study and whatnot. But anyway, we're, we're putting that up. It's so crazy. Me and Jill talked about it the first of the year. And then I was like, oh, Lord, that's so much work. I don't know that I want to do that. And, and then we did it. And like uh, in the last three days, I've had two people tell me of new believers that they sent to the website. So like, you need to start reading this. I'm like, OK, Lord. All right. Uh, I got it. Yeah, I got it. Okay. Yeah, so if you want to read that, that's on our website. Our website, by the way, is, um, you know, it's right there on that, at the back of our, your first page of your notes, right below the middle of the page. If you want more information, www.tsfmemphis.org. So you can go there, find all that. And the, um, and the, the last thing, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news, you know, and man, you know, and if you paying attention to what's going on in Memphis, this one is a shocker. But the mixers are broken at Gibson's Donuts, and they're not going to have glazed donuts until either tomorrow or Thursday. So you got the you got the doggone blizzard, and then the Gibson's. I mean, everybody always asks me, "Are we living in the end times?" I am sure this is it, beginning of the end. How are we going to make it? I don't. Yeah. Good Lord, help us. Um, I knew from all the people that went to Gibson's Donuts Sunday morning, they're like, oh, Lord, we can't get donuts for church, you know. We got to go get one of those off brands, you know. Like, yeah, you can't do that in Memphis. In Memphis, if you, if you buy a donut and you don't get it from Gibson's, that is as close to blasphemy as you can possibly get without going over. And y'all know I'm telling you the truth. All right, y'all, let, let me pray for us and we'll, we'll get into Acts here. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you have shown your grace to us and uh, just the incredible reality that you've called us to yourself and you've given us an inheritance in the kingdom that's coming, uh, an inheritance that is imperishable, indefiled, reserved in the heavens for us now. And we look forward to the day when all those things are made complete and as we read through the book of Acts, we know that you give us insight into the beginnings uh, of the works in the church that we are a part of. And we continue to see how you're working and moving things along. So give us wisdom and insight into these things that we're reading, these truths, so that we can understand you uh, better and the plans and the purposes you have for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, last week we left off on page 55 in your notes. We're in Acts 13. Um, just, just some big picture review. We're, we're getting to some uh, exciting parts in the latter part of Acts, the latter half of Acts. Everything is shifting away from primarily Peter and the apostles in Jerusalem. And now we're shifting to the gospel, spreading up, going north. Uh, out of Israel into the nations, into the Gentile territories. And so in, uh, on page 54, you get Barnabas and, and Paul, Saul, 
They are set apart by the Holy Spirit for the work that he had been planning for them. And the church at Antioch sends them out. And we read last week on page 55 that they go uh, down from Seleucia and they sail to Cyprus. And then they arrive in Salamis and they proclaim uh, the message in the Jewish synagogues. Uh, one of the things that we'll see, and, and this will happen in a couple more episodes, as Paul is going out and traveling and preaching, he always goes to the synagogue and preaches the gospel there first. And, you know, this ties in what he says in, in Romans. The gospel is for the Jew first and then also for the nations, right? So, but the Jews get first dibs. Since the promises were given to the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they get to hear that everything we've been looking for has been fulfilled. And then whether they reject it or accept it, right, that determines what happens with them. But then after that, Paul will go on and, and preach to the other uh, people around him. And today we're going to hear Paul's first sermon in, in one of the synagogues here. But uh, so far, they've gone down to Cyprus. And um, last week we saw after Cyprus, if you turn over to page 56. So they, uh, in, in, uh, on the island of Cyprus, they meet a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. And he, is, he seems to be convinced by what they're talking about, or at least becomes, uh, you know, he thinks it's something worth looking into. Uh, he's astonished about the teaching of the Lord and so forth. And so uh, after that, Acts 13, page 56, 13 through 52, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. John, however, left them and went back to Jerusalem. That's going to be a big deal. Uh, on the second missionary journey, that's going to cause some tension between Paul and Barnabas. And we'll wait till we get to that journey before we talk about it. Uh, but just notice here, it just, it just a vanilla statement. He left and went back to Jerusalem. That, of course, is John Mark, uh, the same Mark that writes the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so he is a cousin of Barnabas, apparently. And so we'll, we'll talk more. We'll see him again in some other episodes. Uh, then it says they continued their journey from Perga and reached Antioch in Pisidia. And then on a Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And this is where Paul is about to give his first sermon. Now, before we get into the sermon, uh, if you'll take out your Paul's journeys map, let's, let's just take a look at where they are and what's going on. Um, this is the first mission that we're reading about here in Acts 13 and 14. There's the very first map up there. You can see it. And you can see all the little arrows that point to where um, Paul and Barnabas travel from. The star, you can see the star in Antioch over there on the right-hand side of the map. And so they go down uh, just south of Antioch to Seleucia. And that's a port town. And they travel from there. They go to the closest part of, of the island of Cyprus, Salamis. And they make their way across to Paphos, which is one of the major centers, one of the, one of the capital areas uh, of, the, um, of the island there. And that's where they meet Sergius Paulus and talk with him and so forth. And then notice as they leave there, now look at where they go next. They go up from there and they go to the, the port at Perga there, uh, Italia, right next to it. But then notice how far inland they go up. You see that? They go all the way up to, to Antioch in Pisidia. Now, this is what's called Pisidian Antioch, which, of course, is different from Syrian Antioch, right? So we got a lot of Antiochs here in the beginning. Uh, and notice, they, they don't stop along the way. They go up there, and that's where they begin to preach. Um, 
Interestingly enough, we, there's a, a few uh, Roman records that talk about Sergius Paulus, the guy that they ran into uh, in, on the island uh, of Cyprus there. And one of the things that we know is that his family was well established in Antioch, in Pisidia. That's where his family's from. They had, they had a, a fairly extensive influence there. And so a lot of scholars believe that as you know, he, uh, he's been won over in some sense, or at least becomes friendly to Paul and Barnabas and the gospel, he tells them, hey, I got great connections up here. Y'all go up there. And by the way, Pisidian Antioch is one of the major capitals of Galatia. If you see, you can see Galatia there to the right of it. Uh, of course, Paul is going to write a letter to the Galatians, people from this area, right? So uh, probably they head up there next because of the connections that they make with Sergius Paulus. And so he opens the door for them more than likely to go up and, you know, he's probably got family they can stay with, you know. So, so as he goes up, his family is going to be able to give some credibility to Paul and Barnabas, it, it seems like. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that, that you see throughout the book of Acts, how the Lord will use these sideline characters to open the door for, other, for the disciples and the apostles to go up. Sometimes it's not even believers. You know, be people who, who are not believers that will open the door and create some context for the apostles to preach in a way that they couldn't if they hadn't made those connections. So it's really cool, you know, as we see the Lord working behind the scenes to get Paul and Barnabas to the right people and those people open doors for them and then they, they move along. Uh, now, a little bit later, you'll see they're going to go from Antioch uh, over to I Iconium and Lystra and Derby. Um, on that map, um, you can see how they kind of go back and forth in between those things. And then they go back up to Antioch and then back down. And then finally they go back over to Antioch in Syria, uh, which is where the home church is. So you can kind of see they're just, they kind of make their route and then they loop back around. And we'll talk about that when we get to that section in chapter 14. But, uh, but you, you can see on this first journey, they don't go uh, super far away. They're kind of making a circuit there. And that's very different if you just take a glance down at the second missionary journey. Now look at that one. Right? Paul begins in Antioch. He goes up through Tarsus, across Asia Minor, into Macedonia. And, you know, all the cities that he goes through there, down into Athens, across to Corinth then back to Ephesus, down uh, across over the top of Rhodes, and then back to Jerusalem. That, that's a far more extensive journey. A lot happens on the second journey. That's where we pick up Timothy and probably Luke comes on board there. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But you can see this, this first effort is fairly self-contained. And we'll talk about the ins and outs of that as we go along. But, you know, since none of us know first century Mediterranean geography. So, you know, you read these place names, you're like, well, where in the world is that? So it's, you know, it's kind of cool to see where, where they go along there. Any questions or comments on any of that? Is but, this where Saul became Paul? Yes, yeah. It's, it's in uh, Cyprus that he starts going by his, you know, the, his Roman Greek name, Paul. Yeah. Uh, there when they meet Sergius Paulus right there on the island of Cyprus. And as I said last week, <coughs> he probably already went by that name. There's some indication that, that Paul might have even been a nickname because in Greek, uh, Paulus means the little one, 
right? The short one. So, you know, his dad may have called him that. You know, he was the shortest among the family and whatnot. And, and we know from his letters that apparently he was short. You know, he says in, in a couple of places indicates that he's not a man of great stature. You know, uh, when people see me, they're like, well, what does this guy have to say? You know, he's he's a little runt of a thing. How can he be anybody? Um, if you or anyone tried to put months on any of these journeys, or how many, how long these journeys? Yeah, there are there are some uh, there's some indications uh, in that. If you let's see, if you look back over, that that's a great question, Tom. If you look back over to your chronology on page nine, um, some of that is there, not not quite all of it, okay. but uh, we they, we we do tr- the scholars that work try to give some basic thing. If you look down on page 9, very bottom, it's bolded, Paul's first missionary journey. And, and really, it should... Uh, uh, Barnabas kind of takes the lead in the first missionary journey. And it really should be Barnabas and Paul at this point. Um, but here, you know, we, th- we think of Paul being the main guy. So Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas from Antioch, Cyprus, Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra. And you see that's 46 to 47. So, so with the other chronology, you know, it's about a... You know, not not more than a year and a half or so. If you take those two things, you know, a year, yeah. Uh huh. Right. Oh man, yeah. That's that's a journey. That's not going. You're not gonna. Yeah. You're not gonna go. You're not. You're not gonna leave Sunday and get there Monday afternoon, right? Yeah. Uh, and you can see, like at top page ten, Paul's second missionary journey, fifty to fifty-two. Um, the, the longer one is the third journey on down the page on page 10. The third journey is from 53 to somewhere around 57. And, and that's that's really where he's going back to all the places that he had been before. So. So, yeah, this is not, um, you know, th- this is in a compact period of time, but a lot of it's probably spent walking to try to get there. You know, uh, we know from what he writes to the letters in the letters to the Thessalonians Paul was probably not there more than, most people think three months. You know, he was there teaching them before he moved on. Some think it may be a little bit longer. But from the indication in that missionary journey, you know, maybe three months. You know, he, he goes to, in Ephesus, he's there for what, two, almost three years, I think, which is a fairly long stay for him. So, uh, you know, they would go and they would stay long enough to teach some disciples, you know, which, which to me is really interesting because, when he writes back to the Thessalonians, you write first and second Thessalonians, and, and they're part of the, the second journey, I think. No, don't, don't hold me to that. that. That may not be right. I, I can never remember when, who does what. But he, he spends three months with them. And he, when he writes the letter back to them, he says, y'all have become an example to all the other churches in the area. Mature, you're following Jesus, whatever. Which means that you can teach somebody everything they need to know in about three months. Right? Which means it's pretty simple, right? <laughs> now, 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 let me say it this way. Let, 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 let me say it this way. You can lay the foundation in three months. You're going to spend the rest of your life building on it, right? Now that, yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I, I, all I'm saying in that is the, the, the things that we believe as believers, it, it, it's not really that complicated. It's not a big, long list of things, you know, the foundational things, clearly. Uh, And and we know 
that he has to write First and Second Thessalonians to correct some of the problems. You know, so again, you know, they had the foundational stuff, but the things that cause problems, he has to write and correct and so forth. So yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, maybe overstatement of the situation, but um, really, really fascinating. So let's let's get into Paul's first sermon here, page fifty six. As as we've gone through, you know, we've heard several uh, significant sermons. Uh, some from Peter, big, you know, the big sermons from Peter. We've had uh, the speech of Stephen, right? We've, we've, uh, and those are really the big ones, Peter's and Stephen up to this point. And I bring that up because as we read through this, one of the things you'll notice is uh, there's some things that are parallel to Peter's sermons, speeches, some things that uh, Paul does that are similar to what Stephen does. And then he adds his own stuff in on this. And, and part of the strategy of that, I think, is Luke is showing how the apostles, they're all teaching the same thing. But as the gospel spreads, the message grows in a sense. And as you know, they're moving into these new areas, the way things have to be presented needs to be a little bit different, even though they're talking about the same stuff, the resurrection and the kingdom, you know, the Lord Jesus, all that. The way it's presented, though, uh, has to be shaped by the people you're talking to. And, and that's really cool because we're going to see the way Paul addresses the Jews in a synagogue, very much like what Peter and Stephen does. Uh, after this, we're going to hear him in, in Athens speaking to pagans. How, how would you address a pagan audience that does not have a Jewish background? What do you do? And we're going to get a sermon there, one of my favorite sermons in the whole Bible. It's awesome. Um, and then thirdly, uh, when we get to chapter 20, he's going to give a sermon to Christians and a sermon to the Ephesian elders. So we're here how he addresses Christians. And so it's really cool that we get these three uh, major sermons to different people groups to see what Paul does. And... Um, and man, out of all of them, you know, Paul, as we would expect, he's the most polished uh, out of all the speakers. You know, he, he was trained for this. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about his training when we get on over um, in a couple of chapters here. But Acts 3.16, bottom of page 56, let, let's get into this sermon, this speech. Um, I, uh, what did I say? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 13. Yeah, I was looking at the three when I said it. Acts 13.16. Bottom of page 56. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> uh, so it starts, it says, Now Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, uh, Paul has very clearly been trained in rhetoric, Greek rhetoric, you know, so he knows the right hand movements to make, right? You know, the, the way to present things and whatnot. This, this goes back, I mentioned this briefly um, when we saw Paul's conversion, but Paul was under the, uh, Rabbi Gamaliel, you remember him from earlier. And, and when we talked about that, we talked about how uh, there was a, a division among the rabbis, apparently, in the first century, that some of them taught and believed that they should only teach their disciples, Ju you know, Judaism, the law, prophets, you know, the, the traditions and cultures of the elders, right, and all the things that got collected into the the Mishnah, which is, you know, like the commentary from the rabbis that had come before. But there was another group of rabbis that thought, well, hey, listen, this whole Greek Roman thing, it's not going away. You know, so we need to not only teach our boys our traditions and our scriptures, we need to teach them how to interface with Hellenistic culture. Because we're all speaking Greek in here. And this isn't, this isn't going away anytime soon. So we need to, if, if, if we're going to have 
interface with the culture at large, they need to be aware of what's going on in that culture. So, so Gamaliel was one of the rabbis that probably taught him rhetoric. Uh, he would have uh, taught him the major Greek historians and the Greek poets. There's great evidence that later in Athens, Paul is going to quote from one of the major Greek poets and one of the major Greek historians. Why? That's what Gamaliel had had him read. Y'all need to know this stuff because this is shaping our culture. And if you're going to interface with it, you need to know what this stuff is. You need to understand how people are thinking, not just our people, but the people that we're going to be dealing with. And, you know, and if you think about that, that makes Paul the perfect person to do what the Lord has set him apart to do. Right. Not only is he a Jew, he has Roman citizenship, which means he can go and do whatever he needs to do in the Roman Empire without worry. You know, that's really going to come up to be a big deal later. Some of his trials. Right. Um, and he, number one, he's brilliant, right? We've all read his letters and we read his letters and we're just like Peter at the end of Second Peter, where he says, hey, listen, our beloved brother Paul has written to you on some of these same issues. And in his letters, there are some things that are very difficult to understand, right? <laughs> uh, Paul is the, as far as I can tell, Paul is the only trained theologian in the Bible. Right. Now, have you ever thought about that? We got we've, we've got fishermen. We got shepherds. We got tax collectors. Right. We got fig pickers. Right. We got prophets. We got our here comes Paul. He's the first trained theologian that we got. So we should expect this guy's going to be coming at it from a little bit different angle. Right. And so um, and so here he comes and, and, and it's clear that he knows how to present something. So check it out. Here we go. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt and led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Um, there's a debate over how to translate that. It could be he put up with them in the wilderness. But or it could also be he cared for them in the wilderness. I think in the context, this, this translation is good. Um, put up with them because Paul's going to end like Stephen before him saying, y'all have always rejected the will of God for you. Right. So I think it may be better to say put up with them in the wilderness. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very wooden way to say it. Um, but yeah, he, yeah, he, he, um, as my mamaw used to say, you're about to get on my last nerve. Like that's, that's the way the Lord is putting up with them out there in the, in the wilderness. 13.9 uh, says, now after destroying the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land to them as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Um, where does he go? He, he goes from Israel. Um, well, he, he begins with uh, Abraham, our ancestors, right? Sends them to Egypt. Uh, then gets them to the time of the conquest. So he, he, in those few sentences, he takes us all the way from Abraham to the time of Joshua, right? And the judges um, there. Very short, because everybody knows this, right? He doesn't have to give a full recitation of it. And no, notice this. This is one thing that I find really interesting. This really stuck out to me reading it this time. He doesn't mention Abraham or Moses by name. Everybody else has. They've, they've made a big point about Abraham, about Moses. Paul just assumes, y'all know who I'm talking about here. 
because he's trying to get to this next point, which is the more important thing or the more significant thing for him in, in this sermon. Top of page uh, 57. I've written on my, over my page number. I can't even know what page it is. Acts 13, 20 says after this. So this this continues the sermon. After this, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, which more than likely is Saul's namesake. Right. Saul, Paul's from the tribe of Benjamin. And so probably his name is taken from King Saul. Um, gave him Saul for 40 years. And after removing him, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man. I, I don't know why this translation did this, but this is the famous statement. A man after my own heart. Right now here in this translation, it says a man loyal to me. But the literal reading is, is what it says about David. A man after my own heart who will carry out my will. Third, no, all stuff we know, right? Uh, Samuel comes. Saul is the first king. After Saul, he raises up David. David is the man, the son of Des, uh, Jesse, uh, that's loyal to the Lord, a man after his own heart. He'll carry out the Lord's will. And, he, and David does that. 1323, he says, from this man's descendants, according to the promise, God brought the Savior, Jesus, to Israel. Now, Look at that. In, in two short paragraphs, he goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus. That's fantastic, right? Because he knows, everybody knows the history that he's talking about. He doesn't have to give a lot of detail on it. Um, a, a couple of in, uh, interesting things will tie together. In 1322, notice what he says. He raised up David, right? Put a little circle around that. Because in just a minute, Paul's going to talk about somebody else that was raised up, right? Making a clear connection. So here he, he takes us to Jesus. And, and that serves as the kind of the overview of this sermon, right? This, Y'all, this is what I'm going to tell you about. All the promises that were given to Abraham and flowed all the way through David and everything else, they have come to their conclusion in Jesus, who God has given to us as a Savior. And that is, I think, I, I meant to look this up. But that's one of the earliest, uh, one of the first times that Jesus is specifically called Savior in Acts. You know, he's, he's been the Messiah. He's been the King. He's been the Lord. But I, I think if I'm right, I, 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 again, I'm, I need to look that up, confirm it. But again, this is one of those titles that's given to Jesus. And here Paul uses it uh, for very specific reasons. And we'll, we'll see why in just a second. Acts 13, 24, he kind of he goes back just a little bit. He says, um, before he came to public attention, before Jesus came to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Uh, circle that all there. That, that is, it's these little words that are so important in this sermon, right? Uh, who in Israel needed to repent? Everybody, right? Which kind of undercuts this whole thing, uh, right? That's, you know, it's a brewing thing in Jesus ministry. And especially as they're going to these synagogues and preaching Jesus as the Messiah. It, it's not that just some of y'all need to repent. Everybody's wrong. We've all missed it. We've all rebelled against God. Right. Everybody. Uh, John called to repentance. And that's what uh, Paul and Barnabas are about to do here. He says, then uh, I, I love the way he states this. 
1325. Then as John was completing his life's work, it's really cool, right? Uh, this is what John was sent to do. I mean, we know that. Um, as he was completing his life's work, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one, but look, someone is coming after me and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. That's, you know, that, that's a collection of several things that John uh, said in his ministry. It's, Luke records parts of it. Matthew has parts of it. John has parts of it. Uh, but that's a great summary of John saying, I'm not the one. There's somebody coming after me that you need to look to. 1326. So here he goes. He, he kind of brings it to his first exclamation mark. Uh, Brothers, sons of Abraham's race. There's Abraham mentioned now. Y'all are the descendants of Abraham. And that would immediately call up the promises given to Abraham, right? That they would be a great nation and that one day they would be a blessing to all the other families of the earth. So son of Abraham's race and those among you who fear God. Uh, almost every, all the synagogues in uh, Asia Minor and in the diaspora, right? Even synagogues in Jerusalem and in the land, uh, they would often have, you know, a contingent of Gentiles that were God-fearers that had become interested in, you know, the, the religion of Judaism and the God that was being proclaimed there. And so some of them were God-fearers. Some of them were proselytes. They had, you know, become converts to Judaism. And so here Paul is recognizing both groups, uh, both those who have, you know, descended from Abraham, but also, you know, the, the, the Gentiles that are in the synagogue that, uh, who fear God. And he says this, this message of salvation has been sent to us. Notice, Jesus is a savior. The message now that Paul emphasizes is a message of salvation. And it's a salvation that's based in repentance, as John taught us, right? So he's starting to tie all these things together. 327. Uh, now, here we go. We're, we're kind of getting, uh, this is Peter, and, and you, hear, you, you hear echoes of Peter and Stephen here. For the residents of Jerusalem and the rulers, since they did not recognize him, are the voices of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. They have fulfilled their words by condemning him. <sighs> Look at that. They didn't recognize him, even though that's the man we've been reading about every Saturday in the synagogue. Anytime we read the prophets, that's who we were reading about, the Messiah we were looking for. It's so clear. It was him. They didn't recognize him. And this is the great twist. That the people who put Jesus to death actually fulfill what the prophets wrote about unwittingly doing it. Right? Because the prophets revealed he, he needed he was going to have to be killed. He was going to be sacrificed for the welfare of the people. And, and they did that. Uh, Three twenty eight. He says for for uh, they found no grounds for the death penalty, but they asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had fulfilled all that had been written about him. Now, there we go. Now, we've been that is a summary of almost everything that Peter and Stephen and, and the earlier speeches they all made a big point to talk about what had been fulfilled about Jesus. Uh, so they fulfilled everything that had talked about the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. They took him down from the tree and they put him in a tomb. Almost every reference to the cross in Acts is to the tree. It's really fascinating to me. You know, they don't, uh, they, they don't emphasize that. And again, I think that takes, goes back to 
what we talked about earlier, the passage in Deuteronomy that says anybody who tangs on a tree is under the curse of God, right? So, so they use that as an opportunity uh, to talk about the saving work of Jesus and so forth. So here, th- n- nothing new that we haven't heard before. This is new probably to some of the Jews in the synagogue. Um, so he's been, he's been killed. Uh, they have hung him on a tree. They've taken him down. 1330, but God raised him from the dead. Same verb he uses about David earlier in 1322. Just as David was raised up as king, so now Jesus has been raised from the dead. In, um, in, in Romans 1, the very first chapter of Romans, Paul makes the argument that Jesus has now been proclaimed to be the Son of God in power. And think about that hyphenated, right? The Son of God who is now in power by His resurrection from the dead through the Holy Spirit. Right? In other words, just as Jesus was raised up to be king, um, uh, David has been, was raised up to be king by Samuel. So Jesus is literally in His resurrection being raised from the dead his resurrection is the very thing that qualifies him not just to be king over Israel, but now the son of God in power. He is Lord. He is king over everything. Right. And, and Paul makes a big deal about that in his letters here. We just kind of see it in, in nuclear form. Um, 1331. And then he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. In other words, all these promises right, that were made to Abraham and David and all those who have come before, uh, the, the good news is that these things are being fulfilled now. Right? Very similar to what Peter had been saying earlier. And then he, uh, Acts 13, 33, he starts to focus on what a few of those promises are. He says, now God has fulfilled this for us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. That's a really important connection. 1334, since he raised him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. So let me stop there just for a second. Um, where he says, I will grant to you the faithful Covenant blessings, that phrase, faithful covenant blessings, that's, that's a little bit difficult uh, to translate. But in Greek, it's, it's more literally the holy and faithful promises. And I, and I want to translate it that way because in 1335, he refers to Jesus as the holy one. Right. So Jesus is the holy one that brings the fulfillment of the holy and faithful or trustworthy promises. Right. You follow what I'm saying there? So here, uh, these promises have been made. Jesus has been raised from the dead, never to return to decay. Very similar to what Peter uh, preached early on. 1335, therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not allow your Holy One to see decay. And so David, after serving his own generation in God's plan, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up did not decay. So again, a big, you know, big emphasis on the death of Jesus and even more particularly the resurrection of Jesus. These 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 things that the Psalms talked about. Psalm 16 talks about your holy one will not see decay. Well, David, when he wrote that psalm, he can't be talking about himself. 
Why? Because we know where his grave is. His body is over there. It's decayed. Right? So it can't be him. So who's the person he's talking about that won't go through decay? Well, it's got to be the Messiah. It's got to be Jesus. Because Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, never to decay. Right? He's not going to disintegrate in the grave. His body's not going to disintegrate in the ground out there. Uh, so again, making a really strong point. Notice again the quoting from the scriptures, Psalm 2. Uh, I think this psalm has been alluded to earlier. This is the first time we have a, a really powerful uh, mention of it in this case. And um, again, it, it ties into the idea that, that Paul deals with in Romans 1, and that is by the resurrection of Jesus, he has been uh, proclaimed, shown to be the son of God in power, right? And that's what Psalm 2 is talking about. Um, psalm 2 is really fascinating. You know, it... it, it it's clearly, um, it's clearly a meditation on the promises to David. And what it goes through and shows is, you know, all the nations are in an uproar. They're raging against uh, the Lord, the one true God, and his anointed, his Messiah, right? The king that he's established on his holy hill, Zion. And so uh, in, that, in that psalm, it says, um, the, the Lord says to the king, to the Messiah, he says, you know, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that was uh, probably in the first sense, it was talking about how at the coronation of the king, you know, when King David becomes King David, he is seen to be the son of God in a figurative sense, right? He is, he is the representative of God on planet earth. But when we think about Jesus, it becomes more literal, right? Very, I mean, it is literal uh, that he is the son of God. But even more than that, he's been established as the king, right? The Lord the ruler over all things. And so Paul is alluding to those things here and, and he's going to develop them later in some of his other speeches. But really, really pr uh, powerful presentation of how the resurrection uh, proves who Jesus is and show how he has to be the one that David was talking about earlier and so forth. Uh, now, let me stop there before we go any further. Any questions about any of that so far? Um, Let's see. Let me look back over my notes while I'm doing that. This is this sermon is not hard to follow along with. And I want to make sure I've made all the little connections we want to make because we're about to get something in here. He's got a nuclear bomb blast. He's about to drop on us. And I want to take just a minute to talk about that. But everybody tracking along OK so far? No questions on that. All right. Acts 13, 38. Boy, I read this this week. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Why have I not seen this before? Uh you know, it's like we talk about, you read something a thousand times and you don't see it until you read that thousandth and one time. You know? um, Acts 13, 38. We get to his conclusion. This, this is the uh, paragraph of his conclusion. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and everyone believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Now, let me stop right there. All right. Um, notice, first of all, he, he ties in the idea that through Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. That ties into what he said about John. John preached repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And if you remember, we said there that, that repentance is this total shift in mindset. You gotta, it literally means you got to change the way you're thinking about everything, right? You thought you knew who the Messiah was going to be when he comes. 
But what I'm telling you is Jesus has come. He's the Messiah. And he did it in a way that nobody saw, foresaw. And the, and the things that he's done. Yeah, I know I'm blowing your mind. And that's why you've got to have a complete mental turnaround. Right. You've got to change the way you're understanding all of this. Right. That, that's what real repentance is. You've got to turn away from your idols and everything that's not of the Lord and you got to turn to him and Jesus is the Lord. Right. So so here uh, part of the effect of that, though, is the forgiveness of sins. And then Paul drops this absolutely nuclear explosion in 1339. Note it. Now I want to read that again. And this time I want to read it a little bit differently because the scholars debate back and forth over the best way to take this. And, and another way to read what Paul says is this. Everyone who believes in him, Jesus, is freed from everything that could not be freed from through the law of Moses. The, 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 word, the word that he used here, justified, y'all know that's going to be one of Paul's big words. If you've read the book of Romans, and I were to ask you what, that's, what that book is about, you would say it's Paul's Treatment of justification by faith, right? Being set right with God on the basis of faith. That one sentence is Romans in one sentence. That's, th that, that's at the foundation of everything that, that, that Paul develops in the book of Romans, also in the book of Galatians as well. And he touches on it in some way in almost every one of his other letters. But here is why this is such, to me, it's such an, just boom. Moment. In fact, me and Tom last week, we were in a discussion and we were talking about the Levitical system. Uh, Graziella came up and was asking about Leviticus at the beginning of class. Like, y'all, you're not going to believe what we're going to talk about today. Um, if you've read through Leviticus and Numbers and you read through all of the Mo law of Moses about the sacrifices and everything given. Now I'm about to say something. If you've never seen this before, you're going to be like, what? In the law of Moses, there is no sacrifice that's prescribed for, for willful sins done with a high hand. If you commit a sin premeditated, knowing that what you're doing is wrong, there was no sacrifice that could be offered for that sin. The, the sin offerings in, the, in Leviticus and in the law were only for unintentional sins done in ignorance. Oh, I didn't know that's what I was doing. I didn't know there was a law against that. You just, add, yeah, right, yeah, just brushed into something. I, I, oh, no, you know, all, all of those things for unintentional. There was no sacrifice that could be given for high-handed sins, knowing that you're rebelling against God, right? Now, I don't know if you've never seen that before. I remember the first time I read through Leviticus and saw that and thought, oh, man, that is, that's rough, right? But let me suggest something to you. Even, even and, and then you immediately think, oh, man. So glad we're on this side of Jesus, right? <laughs> because uh, Harlan's talking to the class. He is the, he is the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist tells us. He's the Lamb of God that does what? What? He, he, he does what? Takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't simply forgive them. He doesn't simply cover over them. He takes them away, right? Uh, he, he removes them from the equation, right? If, if, if the great equation is, right, I sin and my sins 
bring condemnation from God. Jesus just takes sin out of that equation. So it can't lead to the same conclusion. Right? He literally takes them away. Right? And what Paul is saying here is that what Jesus has done, he has, he has freed you from even the things that the Mosaic law could not free you from. Even the things that you couldn't be justified for under the Mosaic law, Jesus has done what that law couldn't do. And if you're a Jew, this would have blown your mind, right? This is where you get in the car ride going home and you're talking to your wife and you say, I don't think that joker knows what he's talking about. That's crazy, right? That, that, is, that is out in left field, right? And then, and then we think about all the development of the New Testament, right? Hebrews, by one sacrifice, he has perfected for all time, right? He has brought cleansing, an eternal cleansing, a once for all cleansing, you know, for those who trust him and believe in him. But even before that, I was, me and Joe were talking to Walk the other day, and I was thinking about this in a way that I never thought about it before. And if there was never a sacrifice for high-handed sins against God, sins that are done willingly, premeditated, I want you to think about somebody in the scriptures, and that man is David, and I want you to think about him and Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. He sees her on the rooftop. And what does he do? He premeditates. I'm going to have that man murdered so I can get his wife. Now, I don't know about you. That sounds like a high handed sin. God, I don't care what you said about murder. I want that woman. And by God, I'm going to get her no matter what it takes. Right. So what? So what's David going to do? Well, then he writes a psalm about that. Psalm 50, 51, right? You, you remember what he says in that? Offerings and burnt offerings, these are not the things you've desired. And this is after his sin with Bathsheba. Lights are coming on, right? And in that psalm, what he says, without any direct revelation in the law of Moses to do so, is that the sacrifices are irrelevant. But if, am I, if I am contrite before the Lord God, he will bring cleansing and forgiveness. Even though there is not a sacrifice for this, God's grace and mercy is greater than what I've done. And I have to trust that, right? And Jesus just kind of brings the exclamation mark to that. Jesus now comes and what he's done is he's done something that can never be done under the law of Moses. The Lord didn't even make a, even make a category for it. And now Jesus has done that. You have been freed from all the things that the Mosaic law could not free you from. Now, I don't know about you. I hear that. And I'm like, I want to find out more about this Jesus, right? Especially if you're a Jew and growing up under all those laws and things you couldn't do anything with. So here, right, so Paul drops this bomb, boom. Jesus has come to do what the, what the law couldn't do for you. And, and I want you to think about that. Y'all have read Romans. You've read Galatians. You, you, you've read um, all of his letters. Uh, Timothy, he touches on this in Timothy. And all throughout that, he, he, he makes an argument that for the believer, the law of Moses is, is irrelevant to us in a, in a sense, right? It, it's still revelation from God. There's still things that we learn from it. But in terms of it mediating our relationship between the one true God, it's irrelevant anymore, right? All of it's irrelevant to what Jesus has done for us, right? Now we've got a whole new thing. And you see, now that, that's where the repentance comes in. <laughs> Wow, I've got to rethink everything, right? And then we get in on into it and, you know, you get to the, oh, yeah, not only has it done that, Jesus has made all the foods clean. <laughs> Family picnic, pull pork catfish. Y'all bring them on out, right? Oysters on the half shell, here they are, right? Shrimp, 
go to the coast, right? We're ready to go. Uh, also, you don't have to worry about the, you don't have to worry about what kind of clothes you're wearing anymore, right? Every one of us are breaking the Mosaic Law because we're we're wearing fabrics with a mixed weave in them, right? Law forbids that. Uh, so Jesus just blows this whole thing out of the water, and, and Paul touches on the most significant part of it right here. <coughs> what the law couldn't do, Jesus has done for you. And so l- look at the conclusion, 1340. He says, so beware that what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. 1341, look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I am doing a work in your days, uh, a work that you will never believe, even if somebody were to explain it to you. Uh, that's from Habakkuk 1.5, right? And here, <clears throat> Paul is clearly putting it into uh, a little bit different context. Paul loves to quote from Habakkuk. I don't, I don't know of many other New Testament writers. He, for some reason, he loves that book. Uh, but here, it's a quote, and the thing is, right, the Lord is doing this new work that even as we're explaining it to you, you, you you're going to have a hard time believing it. You see that? But believe it, right? That's what we're calling you to, repent, turn away from those old things. There's a whole new thing that God's doing here. 1342, I love this. As they were leaving, the people begged that these matters be presented to them on the following Sabbath, right? Now that's the way you end a message, right? I've never finished up a message and say, hey, Stacy, we want to have you come back next Sunday. Uh, it's more along the lines of, hey, let me know when you're showing up again. Because uh, I think they, you know, they want to miss that Sunday when they come back. Paul, they're like, hey, come on back. Uh, we got we, we, we to hear more about this. Uh, you can see the aftermath of it on page 59. And then I'll see if you've got any questions about any of that. Uh, 1343 says, now after, and by the way, man, that's just such a powerful sermon. It's, you know, it's compact. Uh, the way Luke has put it together for us, it hits all the high points. And again, it builds on what Peter and Stephen and, and the other speeches that have come before. But now uh, Paul is speaking to this synagogue of Jews out in Asia Minor, right, in, in the diaspora, not in Israel. So he, he comes at them a little bit differently here. 1343 says, Now after the synagogue had disbanded, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. So, right, so they're believers there. Um, the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the message of the Lord. That's, that's powerful, right? Man, they have, uh, they've, they've blown the thing up. You know, later uh, in the missionary journeys, they're going to go to a town and uh, the leaders of the town said, oh no, here are these men who have turned the world upside down and now they've come to us. What in the world are we going to do, you know? Uh, 1345, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to oppose Paul by, by saying, uh, uh, oppose what Paul was saying by insulting him. Or uh, That word insulting in Greek is blaspheming him, uh, to slander him, to, to revile him. That jack wagon, he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? He's useless. Um, and, and again, notice what the motivation is out of jealousy. We heard this about the Sadducees earlier. They became jealous of, of, you know, the traction the apostles were getting in Jerusalem. The scribes and the Pharisees were jealous of Jesus and the Gospels because everybody's going to them and, and not sticking with them. <clears throat> and, and y'all know jealousy is just another form of greed, right? And, and what is greed is the root of almost all of our sins, right? Um, the love of money, all those things tie into that. 1346, then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, 
it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the earth. 1348. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, uh, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Um, as you all know, the, the word that's translated Gentiles, it simply means the nations. And there are some contexts where it's better to translate it nations and some to translate it as Gentiles. And this is one of those passages where you see both things. Um, like at the end of 46, probably uh, you could you could leave that as as the Gentiles. That's OK. But then in 47, uh, where he says, I've made you a light uh, uh, for the and in Isaiah, it's the nations here. So, you know, the Gentiles are the people from all the other nations that are not part of the family of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And so um, here when they hear it. So 1348. Right. The Gentiles. Right. So it wouldn't be appropriate to translate it. That is nations. So the people who from who were from among the nations. Right. The Gentiles. They heard this. They rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Um, uh, first of all, this is not they're not saying in, in the big picture, they're not saying, OK, we're not preaching to the Jews anymore. It's just in this area, because when they go to the next couple of places, they're going to go to the synagogue. They're going to present it to the Jews first and then turn to the to the uh, Gentiles. So, uh, you know, this is this is going to become a pattern for them. They go to the synagogue, to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. So what they're saying here is that just in this area. Uh, now that the Jews have decided to reject them, well, we're going to turn on from y'all. And now we're going to you've had your chance. And notice they've had some who have believed. Right. There's some of the Jews and some of the God fears have turned uh, to the gospel. So as you know, the others by and large reject it, they say they're going to turn away. Now, there's two things here. And one, I'm not going to talk about this week and I'm glad it's right at time. <laughs> and y'all know what that is at the very end of 1348. All who had been appointed to eternal life believe. I'm not even going to talk about that this week. I'll come back and talk about that next week. And that's even a lie because I'm hoping most of you will have forgot about that next week. And I can just start right up and not even have to touch on it. Um, 1347, though, this is this is a really cool connection. 1347, right? Uh, they quote, I have made you right. Uh, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you alike for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That is a, a quote. Uh, parts of it are from Isaiah 42, 6 and also Isaiah 40, uh, 49, 6, Isaiah 42, 6 and Isaiah 49, 6. And if you know those passages, those are the passages that are about the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah. So in Isaiah where he says, I have made you a light to the nations to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That first and foremost is, is what Jesus has been sent to do. Right. But Paul and Barnabas, as his emissaries, Jesus mission is now their mission. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's what the church is. Right. We're, we're just we, we continue to do the work that Jesus came here to. Now, clearly, I'm not talking about dying for people's sin. You all know what I mean by that. The mission of the gospel and bringing people into the kingdom that we're, we're still continuing on in that work. And I love that they quote that 
And instead of making it about Jesus, it's like that's what he's commanded us to do. We're now the light to the nations, right? Really, really powerful. Now, y'all, for, for real, I am going to talk about that uh, appointed to eternal life, I uh, believe, but we're going to need more than no minutes to talk about that. So, um, so I will pick. And in fact, I, y'all, y'all, I'm even going to write a note right here. This is where we're picking up. Now, let me, I'm just going to, now, I, I hate to even say this and jinx the whole thing, but this is the first time that I can remember. I have a chart, right? But I'll show you the chart. So, you know, I have a chart that tells me what I need to cover every week so that we finish Acts. And so far, we have done, we've done it. We're on track. Even having a snow day. I mean, man, you know, that is, the, the angels in heaven are rejoicing. You know, it's, it's the things that the angels never long of looking into, amazed at it. How in the world is Stacy staying on track? This is, hadn't happened before in the known universe. All right, y'all, let, let, let me pray for us and we'll turn loose here. Father, we thank you again for all your goodness and grace. We, we thank you for your word, not just the book of Acts, but this treasury that we have uh, of these books and letters and poems and everything that you've collected over the millennia and preserved for us so that we do not have to wander around down here wondering what comes next or, or what life is all about. You, you've revealed these things clearly to us and plainly to us. And even though there are things that are difficult to understand, your Holy Spirit does work and reveal uh, the meaning of these things as we need it. And so, Father, we thank you for this and we give you all praise and pray that in everything we study together, that uh, the main goal would be accomplished. And that is we would learn to love you more deeply with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And as we do that, we will be a shining light among all the people who don't know you yet. And so we, uh, we ask all these things and pray all these things for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.